Man, what a great day it's been already. We probably should just go home. We probably ought to just do that. Uh, But I'm so excited to share this with you today. Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. We've been going through the book of Romans uh, verse by verse for about six, seven months now. And man, it's been so good for me. I'm so excited about today because we're going to talk about something today that I think if I were to try to pinpoint one area of my life as a follower of Christ that has been probably one of the most transformative, it's been contained here in Romans chapter 7. And so we're going to kind of begin to address that here today. Our title today is Reaching for God. And we know one way or another, all of us are reaching for God. We've all been here today. That's why we're here today. In a sense, we're reaching for God. Several years ago, I was at a uh, little mission venture. It was called the Houston Project. We're kind of in downtown Houston trying to reach out to people. But one of the things they did for us, which was so, so great, is the leadership at First Baptist Church of Houston. Uh, they took us on, a, on like sort of a, a, a day of field trips, and we went to a, a Buddhist temple. We went to a, uh, a Muslim mosque. And then our last stop of the day was a Hindu temple. We went to the Buddhist temple, and there was a sweet, kind, older lady there, and she was the priest there, and she talked to us about how, you know, Christianity and Buddhism are so ethically similar, and they're so much alike, and you know, we're kind of agreeing with that, but I'm thinking in my mind, no, no, we're very, very different. And then we go over to the mosque, and again, a very, very kind, older gentleman, we asked him all sorts of questions, and his, the main thing he wanted to get across to us is that, you know, hey, Christianity and Islam, very similar because, you know, our ethics are so, so much the same. And then we go to the Hindu temple, and I got to tell you, I wish I could describe it. I wish I had a picture of it to show you, but you go in this big gate, and there's this massive courtyard, and there's a marble pyramid, a white marble pyramid there in the middle of this massive courtyard. And as we're approaching, there's, there's statues all over the place of, you know, Hindu gods, you know, man and elephant, you know, man and monkey, things like that. And as we're approaching this temple, and I notice that each individual brick, about as big as a cinder block, is made of white marble, and they're all hand-carved with images of other Hindu gods carved into each and every brick. And I just thought, man, how much work went into this place, you know? And we go inside, and man, it was like a funeral home in there. It was dead quiet. And the room was probably about the same size as this one. And then we just kind of sat there, very solemn, very quiet. And here in a few moments, the priests, they kind of open up a door, and the priests come out. You know, the guys, have the, they have their heads shaved, and they're wearing the orange robe. And they come out, and they're waving some incense and things like that. And uh, they uh, read some from the, Hin- uh, the, the Hindu scriptures. And they hit a gong. And man, when they hit the gong, I was sitting probably about where Butch is right over here. This guy over sitting a row ahead of me, he just hit the floor. Man, I mean, he went down hard. And he's, you know, it's a marble floor. And man, he starts praying and he gets up again. They hit the gong again. Boom, he goes down again. I was like, that's gotta hurt, you know? And we did, he did this like four or five times. And then they finished, and each time he hits the floor, and then they went back behind the door, and our guide looked at us and said, okay, we're done. Okay, you know, and we left. And I got to say, number one, I was so, so moved because uh, the people there were so sincere. They were so committed, so dedicated. I mean, there again, just the 
financial outpouring it would have taken to build something like that, but then to see their dedication to it. But then the other thing that really struck me was that this man, I just kind of had a sense in my heart, he's committed some kind of a sin and he's begging his gods for mercy. And I couldn't stop thinking about that man who kept hitting the floor because he was just so sincere with all of his might, with all of his strength, reaching for God. You know, in one way or another, all of us here today are like that man. All of us are reaching for God. And when you leave this building today, everybody you encounter is going to be like that man, reaching for God. Everybody is reaching for God in one way or another. Some are going to use sex to reach for God. Some are going to use religion to reach for God. Some are going to use money and material things to reach for God. But we all long for something what? More. We all want something more. One time Rockefeller was asked, sir, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Okay, we all want a little bit more. And the big question we have to answer is, will I reach for God? You see, there's this pervasive restlessness in the human soul. It's just planted there. We long to be more, to do more, to be a part of more. And if you have to ask ourselves this question, if I keep going the way I'm going, and if I keep doing the things that I'm doing, Will I reach God? Romans chapter 7, an incredibly important principle for your life and mine. Philosophically and practically, it has huge implications for our lives. Paul is going to teach you and I how to navigate our relationship to a very, very powerful force in our lives, and that force is law. Law. Look at verse 1. Do you not know, brethren... For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, notice when he says there, the law has dominion over a man. If you look in the original language, the Greek, their word the is not there. So it's just law. It would sound something like this. Law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. I don't think, and most scholars would agree, that Paul is thinking only about the Old Testament law here, the Ten Commandments, you know, in the beginning of your Bible. Paul is interested in the essential character of all religious law, all religious thinking. The Bible tells us clearly there is a natural law, and it's been like impressed, it's been imprinted onto the creation and onto the conscience of man. In Romans chapter 2, he says this, Gentiles don't have the law, the law of Moses, but when they instinctively do what the law requires, they are a law in themselves though they don't have the law. They show the proof of the law written in their hearts and their consciences affirm it. If you were to go around the world and study every religious philosophy in all of human history, you're going to discover a striking fact that there is a common thread of morality that's shared by every great religion in the world. It's called We call it the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're going to find some version of the golden rule in every major religious philosophy in the world. It's in Roman paganism. It's in modern-day atheism. It's in Wicca. Ancient Egypt has a golden rule. Persia had a golden rule. Greece had a golden rule. Uh, Ancient China had a golden rule. Confucius said this, what I do not want others to do to me, I have no desire to do to others. Okay? It's remarkable how similar so many religions are in their ethical expectations. I know, you know, 
Uh, people like Hugh Jackman, for example. Hugh Jackman's part of a movement where they sit and they try to figure out what are all the commonalities between all the world religions that I'm going to make my religion out of that. And so many people are doing that today. But this kind of proves exactly what Paul told us at the beginning of his letter to Rome. In Romans chapter 1, look up on the screen, he said, the wrath of God is coming against all the wickedness of people who suppress the truth. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What is he saying? Mankind instinctively knows that there is a higher reality. And because there is a higher reality, mankind also understands there is a higher morality. But, Paul says, mankind refuses to glorify God, acknowledge him, and give thanks to him. What they do instead is they fashion God as they want him to be. And what we have done is we've manufactured all sorts of religions in an attempt to reach our own version of God. And so all around the world, all through history, all sorts of religious ceremonies, laws, uh, disciplines, regulations, people are required to perform. The Jews have their 10 commandments, which actually is 613 commandments in the Old Testament. All right, Kabbalah, you know what Madonna's a part of? There are, fifth, there are 12 commandments. Uh, Islam, you know, the five pillars of Islam. Uh, Buddhism, you know, Richard Gere, Christopher Nolan, Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Uh, Hinduism, uh, you know, uh, oh goodness, pretty woman. Julia Roberts, uh, the 10 disciplines of Hinduism. Scientology, Tom Cruise, all right? 16 levels of Scientology. Here's what you need to understand. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. And if you were to sum up religion in one word, it's the word do. Do this, you'll find eternal life. Do this, you'll find God's acceptance. Do this, you'll have God's affection. And at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of doo-doo. All right, it really is. That's all it is. Christianity, however, is God's attempt to reach man. And if you have to sum up Christianity in one word, what's the word? Done. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And I don't want to be a religious person, but I do want to reach God. I want to know God. I want to be with God. The tragic irony we discover here in chapter 7 is that as admirable as religious devotion is, religion or law-keeping will actually prevent you from reaching God in the fullest sense. You know, it was so sad this week to learn that Sinead O'Connor was found unresponsive in her home in London. It was the end of a very difficult life for a very gifted person. She had a very difficult childhood. I read up on her a little bit this week. She really struggled mentally. She spent much of her adult life in uh, mental health treatment centers. Her son died of suicide at age 17. She had a very rocky relationship with the Catholic Church, if you know anything about her musical career. But she was actually ordained a Catholic priest by kind of a renegade church in France. So she went through all that rigor to become an ordained Catholic priest. And she did that for quite some time. But in 2018, on Twitter, she announced that she had renounced Catholicism and converted to Islam. And she said this on Twitter, this is the natural conclusion of any intelligent theologian's journey. There again, she's studying scriptures. All scripture study leads to Islam, which makes all other scriptures redundant. And when she was asked how she came to discover that she was a Muslim, she said, I started studying scriptures from different religions, trying to find the truth about God. She's reaching for God. 
But then when I started reading, I just read chapter two of the Quran, I realized I am home. So she's an extremely religious person, more devoted and dedicated than probably any of us here, especially me. But for all of her white, hot, religious intensity, it never translated into love or joy or peace. Why not? Number one, living by law is going to rob you of God's acceptance. Look at verse two. Paul says this, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. She is not an adulteress, though she has married another man. You think, what does that mean? This is kind of hard to understand, admittedly, but it goes something like this. Back in chapter six, the apostle Paul was using the analogy of slavery. And now he changes the metaphor. Instead of the analogy of slavery, he's using the analogy of marriage. And I know what some of you are thinking, that's no accident, they're strikingly similar, okay? (laughs) But I'm very happily married. I love you, honey. I love you very much. I really do. But if a woman's husband dies, that legal bond is dissolved. She's free to choose someone else. And you ask, what's wrong with being married to law? Why is that so bad? I know people who are very good, who are very religious. Think about this. Your spiritual life, the life of your soul, it's not about ethics. It's about acceptance. So my wife, Melanie, is right over here. A lot of you don't know her. But back in 1989, when I'd first moved here, I was on a Sunday night. I was at a, a church service over at First Baptist Church here. I saw this beautiful girl across the auditorium. You know, and I was about 50 pounds lighter back then, had brown hair. I noticed that she was checking me out, you know. So I said, hey, we should go to lunch sometime. And I began courting Melanie. Now think about this. Let's suppose after a few dates, I make her a proposition. I say, Melanie, I want to marry you. But I couldn't possibly accept you right now the way you are, okay? I, here's what we'll do, though. I want you to come and live with me in my humble home. And while we're living together, I have a cookbook. It's been in my family for years. And I want you to study this cookbook carefully. And if you diligently study my cookbook and you cook all my favorite foods, after about 20 years, I promise you from this date, 20 years from now, there'll be an assessment. I will weigh the good cooking against the bad cooking. And if the good outweighs the bad, we can get married. And if you perform well enough, when that assessment comes, I'll accept you we'll have a love relationship. Melanie would have gotten up from the table and left right there, all right? She would have done it, and she would have every right to, okay? But if I said, I have another home, it's a massive, glorious home, and if you pass my test, I'll take you there, we will live there. Again, that is, if you've earned it. How insulting is that? That's not love. That's a business transaction. And yet so many people believe that a glorious God would act this way. I will accept you if and only if you make it worth it to me. Hmm. In every religion, there's a rite of initiation. You get on the path. You strive to stay on the path. And then when you die, this assessment comes and your good deeds are compared to your bad deeds. And if the good outweighs the bad by a large enough margin, you are accepted by God. But you know, Mel and I, we've been married for 32 years this November. And I'm more in love with my sweet wife than I've ever been before. How did this happen? 
at the beginning of the relationship, we both accepted one another unconditionally. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I got to perform a really, really sweet wedding last weekend. I really appreciate Michael filling in for me. And I, I just, you know, I know when I'm gone that I have so many guys that can fill this pulpit so well. But man, just watching that young man and that young woman make those vows to each other. I vow to love you unconditionally until the day that I die. And I want you to think about this. Melanie doesn't have to keep the rules in the cookbook to gain my acceptance. Why not? It's already given. That sets her free to learn to cook my favorite recipes already, okay, for one reason, and that's love. Love. Billions of people, though, do this with God all day, every day. They believe their performance is the basis of their relationship with God. You may be here today, and you're thinking, man, something bad has happened in my life because of my bad performance. Or you're thinking something good has happened in my life because of my good performance. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to be free from that. You don't want to think that way any longer. Because see, Christianity does not compete with any other religious philosophy. Christ offers you and me total and complete acceptance right here and right now. You don't build up to acceptance, all right, and then get it at the end. No, the relationship begins with acceptance, full-on acceptance. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, can we boast that we have, not been, we have not done anything to be accepted by God? Our acquittal is not based on obeying law. It is based on faith. And so authentic Christianity is a completely different approach, an altogether new way of thinking. At the beginning of your relationship with God, as you reach for God, someone is standing there, not a guide, not a wise man, Okay, not a prophet, not an enlightened man, but a savior. Jesus made the claim that he would die for our sins, not his, but for ours. And he proved his claim was true and trustworthy by rising from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, through Christ you've come to trust in God. You have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and you were cleansed from your sins. Christ's perfect death does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He endured an infinite punishment in your place and he now provides a perfect righteousness in your place. Think about that. Which means that our salvation is based on a work done totally outside of ourselves. This is the mystery And the masterpiece of Christianity, authentic Christianity is the furthest thing away from religious law, a moral improvement program, a religious life hack. Our acceptance to God is Christ's acceptance to God. Our acceptance to God is perfect because it's Christ's acceptance. It's permanent because it's Christ's acceptance. Ephesians chapter one, God chose us in Christ that we should be holy and good before him because he loved us He planned we would be his own children. We have been accepted by God through Jesus Christ, whom he loves so much. See that last line there? If he loves Jesus so much, he sees you in Jesus' position. He loves you so much. Which brings us to our last point. Is that living by law will not only rob you of God's affection, 
it will also, I mean, acceptance, it will also rob you of his affection. Look at verse four. Therefore, my brothers, because you've died to the law, you also become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. That is a remarkable statement. The importance of that cannot be overstated that those who place their faith in Christ were made to die to the law. If you are here today and you can say like Edie does a little while ago, I have trusted Jesus to be my savior. You need to know that you know that you know that you are dead to law, dead to law. And I want you to see this. This is done through the body of Christ. Think of the Lord's Supper when Jesus broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he handed that body of his over to the most barbaric, sadistic, cruel soldiers who have ever walked this planet. He offered them his sinless body and they broke it. He who owed no debt to God paid yours and mine. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could be dead to law. I need to say that again. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you and I could be dead to law. This means your entire approach to spirituality has to change. You got to pivot and you got to pivot hard. You must be separated from law as a guiding force in your life so that you can be married to another, Paul says. You were freed from law and then married to Christ. Let that sink in. God Almighty wants that kind of a relationship with you. Isaiah 62, like a young man taking a virgin as his bride, he who formed you will marry you. As a groom is delighted with his bride, so your God will delight in you. Your entire standing before God changes when we come to Christ and we are united to Christ in some unfathomable way and it is a soul marriage. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband that I might present you to Christ. And notice what Paul says about Christ here. He says, him who, raised, who was raised from the dead, the person that you are spiritually joined to as a Christian is as alive right now, more alive actually than the person sitting next to you. And he draws you into a relationship with himself for one reason, affection, affection. Do you understand today that the Lord in heaven above has a great affection for you? Philippians 1.8, Paul says, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, whose great love fills me. Do you notice what he said there? I have this incredible affection for you Philippians. Why? Because Jesus does. And it's in my heart. It might surprise you, by the way, to know that love and affection are not really the same thing. It's kind of easy to confuse the two. We often hear that God loves us, but how often do you hear that God has a great affection for you? Affection is that outpouring of love that makes you feel wanted. It makes you feel valued. It makes you feel prized as if someone delights in you. When a man gives his wife flowers, it's affection. When the wife cooks her husband's favorite meal, 
I'm obsessed with cooking. I noticed you noticed that this morning, all right? Uh, that's affection. It was God's affection for you that moved him to save your immortal soul. Titus chapter three, when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. And it wasn't by works that we did, but according to his mercy. There's a massively transformative belief that we all need to embrace. I don't know where you are in your life today. I don't know what's happened in your past. But when you ask Jesus to be your Savior, it's not that God tolerates you, but he delights in you. And you need to believe that you believe that you believe. God does not just tolerate me. He delights in me. All right? Sometimes we might say that to somebody. You know, like, hey, I love you, but I just don't like you right now. All right? We might say that. God would never say that. We might have somebody in our family like, hey, they're family. We have to love them. You know, you have that person in your family, right? God would never say that about you. God doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. And as amazing as this affectionate relationship is, there's a very real threat to the well-being of our love relationship with God. We all have a strong instinct and inclination to perform for God, to prove ourselves to God. And that threat is law. Law. We reach, we worship, we give, we serve, we do, we discipline. And if our lives don't turn out the way we planned, the way we think we deserve, our love relationship with God suffers. I'm a good person. I'm good to people. Why would God let this happen to me? She's a good person. He's a good person. Why would God allow this to happen to them? I was asked to perform a funeral several years ago. It's for a woman I didn't know very well, but I kind of knew of her. And she was just an amazing lady. Loved the Lord. So committed to her church. And I knew her son kind of casually, but we got along really well. When his mom died, uh, after a very long and very painful battle with cancer, he asked me if I'd perform her funeral. And so while I was sitting down with him, we're preparing for the funeral. And he went on and on about how good his mother was. She was the most amazing lady. All my friends loved her. My wife loves her. You know, this and that and the other. Then he got dead serious. And I'll never forget this. It made a real strong impression on me because he's a very committed Christian. He's in church every Sunday at a large church in Amarillo. He's in church every Sunday. All right? He got really angry. He got really angry. And he looked me in the eye and he said, my mom was a good person. She went to church. She was kind. She was generous. She never hurt anyone. She wouldn't hurt a flea. Why would God put her through that? She didn't deserve it. I have to tell you, I've had many conversations like this in my years in the ministry. I once spoke to a young man who was so despondent, so discouraged, I thought he might even take his own life. And he said, I'm a good person. I treat people right. I'm always giving people money. If people need anything, they know they can ask me. I'm always helping people. And yet I go home every night and I'm by myself. I'm all alone. Why? Do, you know, I don't deserve this. Why does God let this happen to me? Here's what happens. People try to mingle law into their Christian faith, mix law and grace. 
And those two things cannot mix. They cannot mingle. Jesus said so. He said, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will break the skin and the wine will be lost along with the skins. But new wine should be put into new wineskins. Now, that man who, whose mother died after that long and painful battle with cancer, I didn't have the wherewithal at that moment to tell him the honest-to-God truth. He was grieving. This is not a good time. But here's what I knew. His mother died with the full assurance of a glorious salvation. She had put her faith in Jesus. She loved the Lord, and she was headed toward a beautiful, glorious eternity with a God who delights in her, who loves her, has affection for her. And I wanted to say this. If you're going to say in one breath, my mom didn't deserve cancer, in the next breath, you need to say, but my mom didn't deserve heaven either because Jesus did not deserve the cross. He actually was good. He was sinless. He was perfect. And yet his body was broken for her. And his body was broken for you and it was broken for me. And so we don't dare tell God what we or our loved ones deserve based on our own sense of law or justice, based on our interpretation of what's right and what's wrong, what's just. You can't mingle law and grace. People have been trying to do this for millennia, and they're like the opposite poles of a magnet. You just can't push them together. And to the degree that you and I allow law to infiltrate our heart, In our relationship with God, we put our love and our affection for God in jeopardy. That guy was mad at God that day. That's why it made such an impression on me. I knew he was angry at God. And we cannot have a relationship with God that is characterized by affection until we do this. Paul says, die to the law. Die to the law. Now you might say, well, you're just saying that we never have any law for any reason. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, we know the law is good if you use it for the purpose for which it was designed. So just very quickly, what does it mean to die to the law? Number one, you need to know this principle of life. Law reveals God, but it cannot give you a relationship with him. So we look at the world around us, we see, we see order, we see beauty, we see design, and we know that Law, it does reveal God's nature, his holiness, his perfection, but it cannot ever give us a relationship with him. We can't create a law to follow that's going to give us a relationship with him. Number two, your performance does not affect your reward, but it does affect your relationship. You know, why, do I be a, why am I a good person? Why do I go out and do the things I do? Why do I serve and bless and build? Why? Because I believe I have a reward in heaven waiting for me, okay? And I'm really excited about that. You know, I want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I really want that really, really, really bad. And so, yes, I do follow God's law. I look at the principles of the Old Testament. I try to model my life, my family, my marriage, after all those kinds of things. But I do not believe for a moment that that is going to affect my relationship with God. Number three, God's law does give earthly success. You know, we are promised over and over again in the Old Testament, man, if you will follow the law, you will have success on this earth, but it just can't give you eternal salvation. I think there are a lot of people that don't really understand that. They're trying to earn some kind of salvation by performing, by doing, by proving themselves to God and say, no, 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 that can't happen. 
but it will give you earthly success. There's no denying that. So yeah, you ought to read your Old Testament. You ought to study the, God, the law of God because if you follow it, you know, Proverbs, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to be successful in this life. Number four, what you do for God doesn't matter as much as the motive and the means for doing it. Paul tells us very clearly in 2 Corinthians that when we stand before God, we're going to be judged, but not so much based on what we've done, but on why we did it. Why we did it, yeah. And then also the means for doing it. Did you do it in the power of your own flesh and blood, in your own strength? Or did you do it because God guided you to do it and you did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, which I'm so excited we're going to talk about in the next few weeks how to do that. And the last one is this. Following God's law will improve you as a person, but it cannot improve your position with God. God sees you. He sees Jesus. If you know Christ as your Savior, your position is secure. It's perfect. It's permanent. Always. God's law will improve you as a person. That's been true in my life, you know, Uh, as I follow and, and try to do and try to discipline myself to follow God's law. It makes me a better man. Absolutely. But I never have believed, I shouldn't say never have, not for a long time have I believed that it would somehow change my position with God, that God would delight more in me because of it. No, I don't think so. And so today as we leave, I want you to remember this. Whatever your relationship status might be today, married, single, whatever it might be, you're a married man. You're a married woman. The Apostle Paul said, I, I have betrothed you to Christ. I have betrothed you to Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you get married. You get married. It's a beautiful thing. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you just to quiet your heart for a moment and just move your heart Godward today. And as you move your heart Godward, I just want to ask you to think about this question. Has law law-keeping, has it crept into my heart? Has it crept into my soul? Has it infiltrated my relationship with my, with my heavenly Father? Has law crept into that relationship, infiltrated that relationship, and is it, is it corroding the relationship? Is it changing the relationship for the worse? Say, well, Les, how would I know? Think about that man whose mother died. Have you been angry at God? Have you been disappointed with God? Have you been confused and despondent, discouraged? All those things. I don't deserve this. I don't, you know, that means law is creeping into your relationship with the Lord. And I just want to ask you to go before the Lord today and say, Lord, would you just show me to what degree this law-keeping, this, this instinct that I have to prove myself, to perform for you, God. That, Lord, could I just delight in you the way you delight in me as a son or a daughter to a loving father? Lord, would you just show me how you delight in me today? And just ask the Lord to give you that, the means to separate yourself from law-centered thinking in your spiritual life. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'll be quiet for about a minute. I want to ask you to go before the Lord and speak to Him about that part of your heart, that part of your life today.
And Lord, today we, we do want to be free. Father, we do want to be a free people. We're free to serve you and to bless you, to praise you and worship you. Offer ourselves to you in love because we delight in you knowing that you delight in us. And so, Father, I just ask that today in a new and fresh way, Father, that we could be free, Father, free from law, that we could die to the law today. Lord, begin with me. And I know you know how often this creeps into my heart. But Lord, I pray that you would do this work in all of us, Father. And we ask this for your glory today, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. Man, you've been so patient and so attentive. So thank you very much. Uh, we're going to sing one more song today. We just like to worship the Lord on the way out as we go out into the world, you know. But uh, I'll be right here at the front. And if I can pray with you about anything, if I can encourage you, minister to you in any way, I want to be available to you. So I'm right here at the front. I'd love the chance to pray with you. We have a little quiet spot over here. And I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about anything. All right, let's all stand. Let's worship and praise the Lord together before we leave today.